move on. We're going to uh, finish off our Good Place Deconstructed series. Uh, for those who have not been a part of this, uh, how we came up with this series is that I watched TV and I watched Netflix and I decided to watch The Good Place, which came up with some really interesting philosophical ideas um, about how the afterlife works. And over the last four weeks, we've covered crazy topics like hell and heaven and who's the judge of humanity, how does God judge us, and all of those things. I hope it's been really helpful for you. We've got all of those on podcast available. And today, we cover our final week in this series. And to be honest, when I was looking into this week and I was preparing for this week, I was like, I could speak for four weeks alone on this topic. In fact, if you go to a Bible college or a seminary, uh, this topic you would spend a whole semester on and you would scratch the surface. We're going to be talking about the last things today. Uh, Or if you go to seminary, it will be known as eschatology, which is the study of the last things. And so please be kind. I've got 30 to 40 minutes um, and I'm not going to be able to cover everything and every passage that deals with the last things, Uh, but what I hope to do is to give you a sense of of the key aspects of what we need to know when it comes to the last things. And um, even the Good Place TV series, when it comes to this whole idea of the last things or Armageddon or the end of the world as we know it, they don't actually touch this topic at all. All they have done in the TV series is that they kind of have this circular understanding of time, where time on this earth is on one realm, and then time in the afterlife is another realm, and they somehow weirdly intersect. And, um, and just because I really loved the TV series and thought it was really funny, here's a quick clip from The Last Things, uh, from The Good Place. <laughs> And so that is um, philosophy's way of describing time, that it just kind of loops around and all of this. But the Bible is actually quite specific in that that is not how the afterlife works. The afterlife is not another realm that kind of coexists at the same time as this timeline. It doesn't loop around. In fact, time has a very definite um, ending. The Bible describes it as... um, the end of this age. Uh, we, we talk about it as Christians as the second coming of Christ. And, and some of these words might give you shivers down your spine because you've seen weird uh, pictures or uh, encountered people that, that have been putting out their, their signs saying repent because the end of the world is coming, etc. And it is kind of crazy. And so today we are going to talk about the last things. And I hope that, like I said, you're going to be kind to me. And I'm going to specifically talk about this topic from two chapters in the Bible, Matthews 24 to 25. I'm not going to read out all of that to you because they will take probably all of our time and you're going to be bored uh, with my voice, but please, please take the time to read these chapters if you want to get a deeper understanding of the things that I said that maybe I'm going a little bit too fast and uh, I, I don't really get to cover it. But if you read this for yourself, hopefully you can understand it. I also uh, would like to point out that on our church app, we do have Sunday discussions which allow us to have conversations if you have other questions that you would like to put forward and we can continue to deepen our understanding. One of the things that I discovered in in in, in, this, in, in preparing for the, this message is that I don't actually like talking about the last things because 
sometimes it has a really bad rep, doesn't it? Like when you think, oh no, the pastor's going to talk about the last things or the end times, it's like, oh, here we go. He's going to talk about the blood moon and the ten-headed beast with 15 horns and, and all these nation rising against nation and all that kind of stuff. Well, hopefully I'm going to surprise you a little bit. But in Matthew 24, to give you a bit of background, Jesus and the disciples were walking in Jerusalem close by. In fact, they passed by the temple. Now, the temple is a really, really important part of Jewish uh, culture because the temple represents God's presence. It represents where they worship God. It represents where they have relationship with God. And so they made the temple one of the most majestic structures in all of Jerusalem. This is how it looked like. Uh, this is... Uh, a life-size, not, not, sorry, not life-size, it's a replica model that is meant to uh, follow what it would have been like. If you notice, if you look at pictures of Jerusalem and you see the golden dome, uh, that is actually not the temple. That is actually a mosque that was built over the temple when the temple was destroyed. And so that is not, if you go there, um, is actually a, a mosque. And if you're not Muslim, you can't go in. So it's fun facts with Nate. Uh, but that's how the temple would have looked like majestic, massive building, you can kind of get a sense uh, that it has a lot of elaborate things about it, like uh, the doors are overlaid with gold, the pillars are overlaid with gold, they have gold here, gold there. Why? Because for them, they were representing the majesty of God. They were, they were trying to represent how big and awesome and beautiful God is. You're meant to go to the temple and go, Wow. And that's exactly what the disciples did. They walked by the temple and they actually stopped Jesus. They were, Jesus wasn't really thinking about going to the temple. I think Jesus was literally taking them on a walk by the temple and the disciples stopped Jesus and said, look at this building. They were like tourists in their own city. How crazy is it? And said, look at how big these stones are and then look at how beautiful the structure is. And then Jesus turns to them and says, hey guys, don't get too attached to this building because not one stone is going to be on another. Jesus prophesied that at some stage, the whole temple was going to be completely and utterly destroyed. And so because of that, the disciples asked, when is this going to happen, being the destruction of the temple? And they asked a second question, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The second coming and end times. Uh, the disciples seemed to have this concept that the destruction of the temple was also the end of the age and the second coming. They equated both those things together and therefore they asked what seemed to be one question but what we now know is two separate questions and we'll cover that in just a moment but just hold that in mind. So we have Jesus's reply, I don't have this on the screen uh, because it will just be way too many words up there but Matthew 24 4 to 14 says this Jesus answered those two questions by saying watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many they will hear you will hear wars and rumors of wars but see to it that you are not alarmed such things must happen but the end is still to come nation will rise against nation and kingdom against na uh, kingdom there will be famines and earthquakes in various places all these are the beginning 
beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus does go on to say that if you are pregnant in those times, you will wish that you're not pregnant. You need to run to the caves. You need to run to the mountains to escape the persecution. And then he says that God limits the amount of time of the suffering because if he doesn't, all men are going to be killed, basically. So it would seem that when you're reading Matthew 24, when Jesus responds to the disciples, that the end times are horrendous, terrible times absolutely terrible they're like oh no this is going to be the worst thing ever and uh, spurred on by a whole bunch of people that write fiction novels based on some of these passages taken completely out of context we have all of these left behind series where there's nuclear holocaust and the robots that take over no no sorry that's a terminator um and and you have all of these things that take place in this world armageddon before god's gonna come and 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 it's kind of crazy because you then get people that read about this or think about this out of context and there are two ways that we respond to this, right? That I generally feel about people or seeing people. One is that we don't care about the last times because the last times seems too scary and we don't want to deal with it. Or it's just too murky and it's like, why do we need to know about what's going to happen, right? And then the other side of things is the other extreme is that people go, I better prepare. And it becomes such a big thing that, that American TV producers have decided that you can make a whole reality TV series called The Doom Doomsday preppers, where people go, look, the Bible's telling us to prepare, so I'm going to have my nuclear bunker filled with food for 30 years, all for me. Craziness. Are we supposed to be like, I don't care about the end times, are we supposed to go, we all need our nuclear bunkers? Which way are we supposed to lean? Well, let me just make a note here. All these references that Jesus was making regarding the famines and the wars and all these horrendous things that, were, that he mentioned, right? It would seem that they have all already taken place in AD 70, 1,950 years ago. What happened was that in AD 70, uh, we have this historical event called the Siege of Jerusalem. Basically, the Jewish people got really sick of Roman occupation because it was getting worse and worse and worse. And so in AD 70, um, the Roman Empire decides to fight back and really kick back. And so the siege of Jerusalem starts in April. Now, what they did was absolutely horrendous. They allowed pilgrims to come in because it was the time of the Passover. And we can, for us, what we can understand is that Passover is around the time of Easter. And so it was around the time of the Passover where good Jewish people would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. The Roman soldiers allowed people, pilgrims, to enter the city. Upon entering the city, they then sealed the city. No one was allowed to leave and no supplies were allowed to enter. When we read in Matthew 24 that there are going to be famines, it's not necessarily because of a shortage of agricultural food, but because perhaps the whole city was in lockdown. There was actually no food in there. If you can imagine being a pregnant woman 
at the siege of Jerusalem, you would be thinking it would be better for me not to have been pregnant. The events in Matthew 24 that Jesus was describing actually fit really well with AD 70. And so what happened then is that the, the, the siege took place and it ran on for months after months after months. And finally, in August, the Roman soldiers entered the city, they sacked the city, and what they did is that they burned the temple down. On burning the temple down, they then proceeded to, for some reason, literally make sure that no stone was on another stone. They literally crowbarred them all off each other. Beck and I were in uh, Jerusalem about six, seven years ago, and they showed us one of the ruined sites, and there literally was, there was no two stone level wall. They were literally all rubble. They literally, and you can see that it's actually on a bit of a mount on the top of uh, a little hill, and they literally threw all these stones off, uh, off the hill so that not one stone was on another. AD 70 was the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gave uh, in Matthew 24, that not one stone was going to be on another. Now, history doesn't really know why the Roman soldiers would be so uh, fastidious about making sure that no stone was on another. And there have been some theories, just, to, uh, just trivia with Nate, uh, although this is unfounded history, uh, but what they said is that during the burning down of the temple, all the gold melted and went between the stones, perhaps. And so because the gold was in between the stones, the soldiers went, well, we want to get to the gold. And so they made sure that the stones were flipped off so they could get the gold. That was one of the theories. Uh, uh, in good scholarly research, it is a possible explanation, but there's no proof of that. But what we do know is that the prophecy was fulfilled. And if the prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70, and if the disciples were asking Jesus, when is the destruction of the temple? Jesus answered that question. Now the disciples seem to equate the destruction of the temple with the end of the age, which obviously, because we're living 1,950 years later, we know that that's not the case. The end of time has not come yet. And so perhaps what we can see is that Jesus was describing the destruction of the temple and then he answered, what is this second coming? What's your second coming going to be like? What's the end of the age going to be like? Are you following what I'm trying to put forward. What I'm trying to say is that, yes, there are many other passages that talk about potential suffering at the end of time. But Jesus also says to his disciples before he goes uh, to be crucified, it says, you will suffer trials and persecution just because you're Christian. You see, our worldview in our Western culture is that God's blessing on our life means that there's no persecution. That is actually unfounded. That is not in the Word of God. If we are Christians, we are going to be persecuted. That is what it's going to be. Now, that persecution might not necessarily look like uh, uh, people literally being killed. In fact, the worst and most physical persecutions seem to have already been taking place across the ages. And I would put forward that those events that take place, yes, they remind us that we are in uh, the age of the last things. But I listened to one theologian put it this way. When Jesus ascended and sent the Holy Spirit to us, we immediately entered into the last things. 
We are living in the end times, not because 2021 is going to be the end of time, but because what we are now in is the final age before God's reign and rule that is described in the second coming. So are we meant to be looking at all of these events and guessing when God is going to come? What is the point of the Bible teaching us about all of these possible different events? Well, it gets a little bit weird, right? But here's what I believe we need to be doing. I'm going to first look at Matthew 24, 36 to 39. This is towards the end of the chapter, and this is what it says. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the, at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus was pretty clear that the teaching on the last things is not meant to give us a checklist. It's not meant to give us a doomsday clock. The Mayans tried that. Well, clearly they were off by at least, hang on, did they say 2020? Well, they were, oh, I guess maybe it's kind of true, right? I mean, we still got another month to go. But I don't think so. I don't think we are meant to be writing all these events down and ticking them off. In fact, all of the events that are marked down, with the exception of the stars falling down, most if not all of the signs of the end times have been fulfilled multiple times. You could argue it's been multi, uh, fulfilled multiple times. If we think about the Holocaust, how can we go, oh, that's not, you know, the terrible... No, those, those were pretty... World War I and World War II were pretty terrible. A lot of people thought that time was literally going to stop because of those wars that rage across the world with millions of people dying and millions of people suffering. Those events have all already been fulfilled and continue to be fulfilled. It's kind of interesting. We are not meant to be having a checklist. So what is this whole idea of the last thing supposed to be about? Jesus continues in Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. There's the main thing that he says about the last things. Therefore, keep watch. What are we watching out for? What is, that, what is it that we are meant to be mindful of in this day and age? I'm going to keep reading from verse 43 onwards. It's not on the screens. But understand this. If the owner of the house had, not, had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a symbol of hell. And so Jesus uses 
with this passage about the servant, uh, three other parables as well that we are going to briefly explore today. There are four parables all together. And Jesus seems to talk about this whole idea of not knowing when uh, the end of time is going to be as, let me just put this word out very carefully so that you get it, is about stewardship. What are we being mindful of? We're being mindful to be good stewards. In this first parable, we hear Jesus saying that you can either be a faithful servant or a wicked servant. You can either keep charge of the house as you are meant to, or you can be wicked and serve your own desires, and the, ser- and the master will come back. That's the first parable. There is a second parable uh, that Jesus uses in the middle of Matthew 25, and it also uses uh, uh, servants as an analogy. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. This is a very famous uh, uh, parable. It's a parable of the talents. Many of you would know about it. The parable of the talents is that the master was going away. Again, the same analogy. Master's going away. Jesus ascended to heaven. He will be coming back one day again. Uh, but the master's gone away. And he entrusts his three servants with, with talents, with money, with resources from his house. And so he says, I'm going to go away. Uh, be good stewards of this. Two of those servants double uh, the, the resources that was given to them. And, and the third one buries whatever resource he had because he says that he knows the master is a hard man. A hard man to please. Is, is a, he was scared of the master. And so what happens then is the master does come back and he does ask for an account from these three servants. The first two servants when, you know, I have multiplied and, and the master says, enter into my rest. You are now going to be blessed in this afterlife kind of a picture, right? Many of you know that. The third one, the master says, you, you wicked and lazy servant. You wicked and lazy servant. You could have at least put my money in a bank so I can get interest. So, and he then casts that servant out into the outer darkness, into hell. And so we have two pictures of being servants, In Matthew 24 and 25, servants that are entrusted with the master's resources, servants that are meant to steward the resources that God has given to us. Those are two of the pictures. Uh, The final picture in Matthew 25, and we've been using this over the last few uh, uh, weeks, is Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And Matthew 25, 31 to 46 is about uh, the... The Son of Man coming and judging humanity and separating them into goats and sheep. I'm going through this really quickly because I'm just trying to get to the key points, so make sure you read this by yourself. But then he then talks to the sheep and the goats, and he he says to the sheep, you can enter into my rest because you have been doing good things. And then he speaks to the goats and he says, you will not enter my rest because you have not been doing good things. And we talked about this last week. We spoke about this as not that our good deeds earn our way into heaven or our bad deeds keep us away from heaven or in fact sends us to hell, but is that it shows our allegiance. It shows who our master truly is. Is it sin or is it Jesus? Okay, so that, that, that is another picture of stewardship. Three of the four pictures already show us a picture of stewardship. Let me show you the final one because this is an interesting one. Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. 
Matthew 25, 1 to 13, it talks about a parable of 10 virgins. And Jesus then goes on to say that five of them are wise virgins and five of them are foolish virgins. The wise virgins have prepared for themselves oil um, as they are waiting for the bridegroom. And then five do not have oil for their lambs uh, as they are supposed to, as they're waiting for the bridegroom. And let me just put forward the picture of virgins, uh, ten virgins, and then and then the groom is this: the ten virgins are meant to represent the church. Virgins, uh, are, we are meant to, as uh, if you look into the Bible, uh, the church is meant to be the bride of Christ. We are meant to, together, the global body of Christ is meant to be the bride of Christ. We are meant to be washed and clean. That's the whole picture of being a virgin. The groom then is Jesus. Jesus in this passage is not trying to say that we are allowed 10 brides each. That is not the focus of this parable. The focus of the parable is that for some reason, I have not looked fully into this, so I cannot teach on this, but there are 10 virgins and half are ready, half are prepared and half are not. Half are wise and half are foolish. And so the groom was a long time in coming. Here's a picture again of the second coming. We don't know when. And it can feel like we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And so as they are waiting, the ten virgins all fall asleep. And then suddenly someone calls out saying, the groom is coming, the groom is coming, the groom is coming. And the five wise uh, virgins light their lamps, they get themselves ready, and they are received by the groom. The five foolish virgins, they do not have oil in their lamps, and they are not ready to receive the groom because they do not have oil in their lamps. Uh, and so what happens is that they finally find a little bit of oil, they make their way to the wedding banquet, and they are shut out into the outer darkness. The picture of hell once again. Why? Because they did not have oil. And that parable got me because it sounded so harsh. Why is it, why is it that all you needed was oil in your lamp. What was, this, what was this picture all about? Why did Jesus use this parable to paint a picture of who was ready to get married and who was not? And I was thinking about it, and, and I think sometimes we get tripped up because we think, well, there are 10 brides, so... This is not that big a deal, but like I said, I don't think the whole 10, the idea of 10 is what we're meant to be focusing on. The whole focus is on the fact that Jesus, as the groom, is coming, and are you prepared or not? And if you are not prepared, that's basically rejection of the groom. Can you imagine this, right? On an actual wedding day, the groom is ready to go, but the bride it's just taking far too long to get ready. You'll be like, oh, runaway bride. <laughs> and I know yeah, that's, you know, the brides often take their time because they really want to test whether the groom's going to stick around or not. I think, that's, <laughs> I think that's what our culture tells them to do and say, one hour later, two hours later, oh, she's still doing her hair. And I was like, yeah, really? They're just testing you, mate. Anyway, not really. Uh, maybe some do. Um, I'm not that kind of celebrant. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like that, but it, it's, it's culture. And, um, but if you keep waiting for your bride to, to come, to, to be ready, there is this sign of like, you, you weren't ready for me. You weren't ready for me. 
And yes, we are waiting for Jesus to come. And it feels like he's taking a long time. But he's Jesus. And he's got a purpose as to why he's taking his time. But the question remains for us, am I going to be ready or am I not going to be ready? Am I going to prepare myself for the groom or am I going to live for myself? That is the crux of Matthew 24 to 25. It is the end times is not about, the last things is not about the suffering that we need to prepare ourselves for. But the last things is a reminder for us that Jesus is coming again and whether you are going to be like the wise virgins who prepare themselves for the coming of the king or they are going to be evil, lazy, wicked, as these parables say, and not. The question that we have to come back to when it comes to the last things is, do I recognize that Jesus is coming again? Do I long for Jesus' coming again? Am I like the wise virgin that is saying, I can't wait for Jesus to come back again, even if it's going to cost me a little bit more in my preparation. I am going to wait because I can't wait to be with my groom. Or are we going to be like the foolish virgins that go, I, Jesus is taking too long and this is just a waste of my time and I'm not going to spend my resources on what I want to do rather than prepare for the coming of the groom. As I was preparing for this week, I read this quote that, that really, really stuck with me. It's from a theologian called Wayne Grudem and he writes this, Do Christians in fact eagerly long for Christ's return? The more Christians are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, the more they, they neglect genuine Christian fellowship and their personal relationship with Christ, the less they will long for His return. On the other hand, many Christians who are experiencing suffering or persecution or who are more elderly and infirm and those whose daily walk with Christ is vital and deep will have a more intense longing for His return. To some extent then, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our own lives at that moment. When I read that, I was like, you know, Lyft has been running for five years. I have not spoken once on the last things. Because I thought that I would be telling you guys about a checklist of when evil is going to be roaming on this earth and the Antichrist is coming and make sure that you don't get 666 on your forehead or your forearm. Or when the beast is going to come and emerge from the depths of the earth. No, 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 no. The Bible is very clear. We do not know when those things are going to happen. It is not for us to create a checklist of when those things are happening. In fact, I would like to say that I think that the generalness of some of these predictions, except for uh, what happens in the sky when Jesus comes back again, why they're so general is so that every now and then we get a reminder, hang on, this isn't it. Every time we hear of a war that is killing hundreds, thousands, not millions of lives, we should go, hang on, this is not it. There is still evil in this world, and this world is not the best thing since sliced bread. We should be thinking, oh, there is this, you know, COVID-19. Yes, we are scared. Oh, it's the coming of the Lord. Yes, it's the coming of the Lord. No, oh, it's the coming of the Lord. Why are we scared? Why are we hoarding toilet paper when we should be saying, if the Lord so chooses to come, I will be ready because I have been a good servant 
Whenever we hear about the things that are going on in this world that is not right, that is not good, that is not kingdom, we should be going, and something in my heart should be going, how am I living for kingdom? It shouldn't be going, how do I hoard more? It should be going, how do I give more? It shouldn't be how much more can I experience and how much more can I take? It's how much more should I be living for the kingdom? The whole purpose is to keep watch for these days are evil, but it's also to keep watch that we are being good stewards. The fact that the master hasn't come yet is actually grace. It's grace on us because we get to today choose to be a good steward. We might be that wicked servant right now. We might be. We might be living for ourselves, you know, beating other people up metaphorically. We might be trying to get our way and try to move forward. We might be pushing our own agendas. But let there be a recognition. The Father, not the Father, the Son is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And He's going to call you to an account of your life. And why so many Christians are flipping scared, maybe it's because you've been a terrible servant. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that to condemn anyone. But that's what these passages are supposed to do. It's supposed to make you go, I did that. While I was doing this, I was like, ooh, how have I been going? Have I been loving? Have I been generous? Or have I been selfish? Have I been seeking my own way or have I been living for the kingdom? You know, when I was growing up, a moment of vulnerability here. When I was growing up and I... I actually read a ton of books about the last times. I just thought it was fascinating. It was like, you know, the, the, the young boy in me is like, oh, you know, nuclear war and, and nations fighting and reading about tanks, uh, all getting to Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff. I was like, oh, this is so fascinating. But, you know, what I remember thinking in my mind is like, I hope I get to have mar- get married first. Seriously. My first thought is I hope before Jesus comes I get to get married first. That would be so, like, please, Jesus. I remember praying, please, Jesus, take your time. I want to get married for it. I, that was my young mind going, there's more on this earth without you than there will be in your kingdom to come. And when I look back at that young boy, I went, I go, you've missed the plot, buddy. And sometimes we, not that marriage is terrible or bad, marriage is a beautiful thing. But marriage is not heaven. Marriage is not kingdom necessarily. Marriage can be for kingdom, but marriage includes strife. Marriage includes trials. Marriage includes persecution. (laughs) (laughs) Marriage is work. Marriage is not smooth sailing. But then we paint this picture of marriage. I painted a picture of marriage to be bliss. And I thought that if I had that bliss, I would be satisfied. And I thought that that was more important than Jesus establishing his kingdom on this earth. And what I would like to put forward to you is that when we think about the last things, when we hear of wars and rumors of wars, when we hear of nation against nation, when we hear of famines and earthquakes and, 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 and great loss of life, that we will remember that God is coming at some stage. Another theologian put it this way, the last things 
in our mind is the last things off this earth. In God's mind, the last things is His fulfillment of His promise for redemption. Is my heart on holding and capturing and hoarding as much of the last things of this earth, or am I more captured by the last things that God is doing to bring redemption on this earth? Am I more excited about what I can do with this earth in its current form, or am I more captured with seeing what God wants to do on this earth as the final acts of redemption? If I don't choose that, what Wayne Gruden was saying in that quote is that you do not have spiritual fervor. It should stir something up in you. Titus 2, 12 to 14 says this, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. When we understand salvation, when we understand relationship with Christ, it should, gen it should stir in us something that goes, I want to see your kingdom come. And yes, we have spoken about this. We get to see kingdom come now on this earth. We are not meant to be waiting for kingdom, simply just waiting for kingdom. We're meant to be living for kingdom right now. But we also recognize that, the, that we are limited vessels of the kingdom and that God one day is bringing the fullness of his kingdom. Kingdom. We get to experience the slices of kingdom now, but I want a whole thing. I don't just want a little bit of the pie. I want a whole pie. And the whole pie requires that the last things take place. I should be excited for it. I should, but that should also stir me up to go, hey, hey, Jesus might be coming in the next five years. I'm going to spend the next five years of my life stewarding everything that he has given to me. It might be, God might be, when he says soon, it might still be 50 years. It might be 100 years, but I'm going to use every single ounce of my life in stewardship of what he has given to me. I hope that this is stirring something up in you because when I was reading this, it made me go, time is short. Time is short. And am I going to be living for myself? Am I going to be living in a selfish way? Am I going to be living for my desires or am I going to be living for kingdom desires? Stewardship is all about recognizing what God has already given to us and living it out. It's understanding that trials and persecution are going to come my way. Trials and persecution are possibly going to be part of somewhat of my everyday. But it doesn't matter because the last things are in place. The kingdom is coming. God is coming. And one day I will stand before him and I wish to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But I want to put one last thought in your mind. And that is that sometimes we think of servants as oppressed and lowly. But when we are servants in God's kingdom, the Bible says you're no longer slaves, but you are friends, you are sons and you are daughters. Can I put another picture in front of you? Is not standing before God as a slave, but as a, for me, a son who chooses to be a servant. I am a son 
that chooses to be a servant and is like dad coming home at the end of the day and me rushing to him and saying, dad, 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 look at what I did today. Look at this drawing. And I know it's not perfect. Look at this craft. I know it's not perfect. Look at this book that I read. Look at this painting that I did. You know, when a child comes to the father at the end of the day or mother and says, hey, look at what I've done. The whole point of it is because the child desires the delight of the father. That's what it should be like for us on the last day. That when we know that dad's coming home, we are running to dad and we are saying, dad, 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 look at what I have done with the time that I had. And yeah, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a Van Gogh. It's not going to be a Michelangelo. It's, it's going to be a Nate. And sometimes what Nate does isn't that great. But it's what I've done. And I know it still gets to the delight of my father. And so if I can leave that picture with you, can I ask you just to consider, to close your eyes, we can get the band up. How's your stewardship? I was drawn to the parable of the talents and how it depicted the third servant, the wicked, lazy servant in Jesus' words. The wicked, lazy servant did not do anything with what he got because he saw the master as a hard man, one that would be hard to please. And we focus on that sometimes. But if I can focus on the other two servants, why then did they do so well? How did they double their resource? How did they do that? I think it's because they knew that their master wasn't a hard man. They knew that their master had given them every chance to succeed. Master had given them grace and grace abundantly and so they had no fear of trying. They had no fear of consequences because they knew that their master was a good man. And another thought came to me, and that's where I said, you know, I wish I had more time on this. But the other thought for me is that when we are stewards, and when Jesus paints these pictures in these parables, he only gives the picture of great success or great failure. And he doesn't paint a picture of the in-between. And I was kind of going, you know what, and the Good Place TV series, they created this place called the Medium Place. It's for the people that aren't that good, but they aren't that bad, so maybe they should go into the Medium Place. But you know what, in God's kingdom, is, there's no medium. If you try and you live your life for God and His kingdom, you will succeed. When you hold back and you live for yourself, you will fail. You either fail terribly by yourself or you live with great fruitfulness in stewardship for God. And so this morning I would like to ask anyone here that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus or you're scared of Jesus or you think that this Jesus guy doesn't care about you, I'm here to say that that is completely the wrong perspective. Jesus already came and died on the cross for your sins so that you do not have to be working and trying to earn anything for yourself. Rather, He gives you abundantly out of the storehouses in heaven. 
That's what the Bible teaches us. We get to live this life with great peace, with great hope, with great joy, with great grace because our Father has already given. And so this morning, if I can ask everyone just to close your eyes, we're not looking around and we're not going to ask you to do anything except to repeat this prayer after me. If you want to be in a right relationship with Jesus, if you acknowledge that you need Him as your Lord and your Savior, can you please repeat this prayer with me? And everyone else, if you can just jump in as well, just so that we can just pray together. Can we, can we do that? Dear Jesus, I know that I need you. I know that I've fallen short. I know that I'm a sinner. But I know that you came to this earth to die on the cross for my sin. And I invite you into my heart. Be my Lord and my Savior. I want to live for you. Amen. Awesome. If you have said that prayer and you want to have this relationship with Jesus, we want to help you out. We've got some Bibles and some uh, uh, tools for you at the back, but you can also text this number that's going to appear on the screen. Just text, I think it's LIFE, and, and, and we'll give you 30 daily texts to help you on your journey, to start you on your journey. But right now, what I'd like us to do is just to have a moment of reflection. This message is not about condemnation. This is not about calling you out and saying you're a bad Christian or you're a good Christian or anything like that. But rather, it is supposed to be a message that helps you just internally go, how am I going to my stewardship of what God has given to me? How am I preparing to meet my Savior one day? Have I been selfish, wicked, lazy? Or am I living in a way that is good and faithful? And as the band sing this song, you can wait in this space, pray, and seek if God's going to speak to you about anything. I believe that 2021 is going to be an amazing year. Because every year can be an amazing year with God's grace. But I hope that more than just being a good year because I enjoyed it, it's a good year because I did something with my life. I did something with what God had placed in my heart. I did something with the gifts, the talents, the resources that God has has, has knit me together with. And so I pray that you will have that moment of like, I want to live for Jesus fully next year. And it's going to be a great year. I'm going to pray. I'm going to close our gathering. Stick around. Uh, morning tea is going to be fantastic as per usual. But if you want a moment to reflect, just wait. It's totally cool. And the band will lead us in this moment. If you like prayer, I'll be here. The team's going to be here. We'll pray for you as well. Dear Jesus, I pray that we don't approach the last things with fear, but rather we approach it with the sense that you are bringing complete fulfillment of your plan on this earth, that we can live with great anticipation, with great excitement for what you are going to accomplish. But in the meantime, as we wait, I pray that we will be good stewards. In the meantime, while we wait, I pray that we will use every waking moment living for you. I pray that you will stir in our hearts, you will speak to us about what you're wanting to accomplish. And I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.